Hi, I'm Kim Vu. Welcome to Vietnola, the show about being Vietnamese in New Orleans, coming to you weekly from New Orleans. Xin chào quý vị. Đây là bài Vietnola, chương trình pháp hành về cộng đồng Việt Nam and New Orleans từ thành phố New Orleans mỗi tuần. Today on the show, we'll have a conversation with our guest, Allison Truitt, Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology at Tulane University. Alison Truitt has recently published a book entitled Dreaming of Money in Ho Chi Minh. Drawing on interviews with shopkeepers, bankers, vendors, and foreign investors, Alison Truitt explores the function of money in everyday life. From counterfeit currencies to street-side lotteries, from gold shops to crowded temples, she relates money's restructuring to performances of identity by locating money in domains often relegated to the margins of the economy households, religion, and gender. She demonstrates how money is shaping ordinary people's sense of belonging and citizenship in Vietnam. Hi, Alison. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for the invitation. Congratulations on the publication of your new book. Well, it's been a long time in the works, so I'm relieved that it's done. It sounds like in a, you did expansive research using a lot of different uh, components of Vietnamese society as examples. Can you talk to us about that research process? It must have been intense. Well, the bulk of the research was conducted between 2000 and 2002, and then I returned there several times. Uh, and it is. There's always something that's very intense about doing ethnographic field work because uh, you're on the ground, you're talking to people, there's constant input. Uh, every time I went back, I felt like, no, I didn't get this right. No, hmm. things have changed so much, and money itself is a moving target. So that posed another difficulty. So when I went back, I would always think, no, I have to revisit my entire argument. 2001 to 2002, it's 2013. Mm -hmm. Money, economy, finances have changed in, in Vietnam since then, correct? Yes. Uh, and uh, I went back this summer, so uh, summer 2013, and I did some more research on gold mm -hmm. uh, because one of the interesting things that was happening was the government's effort to nationalize the gold market. Interesting. A gold standard then. Well, uh, not in the way that we typically think about it in terms of the history of Western Europe or the United States, but rather by uh, only authorizing a single manufacturer to create a tail, what's the standard unit of gold. Oh, interesting. Uh, and also to limit where people could buy and sell gold, because during the 1990s, the Vietnamese government tried to encourage people to deposit their gold savings in the bank system. <laughs> uh, and which, how was that process? <laughs> well, the process, uh, on the one hand, it did contribute to uh, building a domestic credit market, but with the rise in the price of gold since really 9-11, so since 2001, it actually destabilized the banking sector because people who had taken out loans in gold simply couldn't afford to repay their loans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so there was a lot of speculation that happened around gold. Huh. I When I was there in 99, someone, my Vietnamese teacher, very educated, you know, mm -hmm. lived in Japan. Uh, actually, she co-wrote the Vietnamese Japanese dictionary asked me to explain how a credit card worked. Yes, uh, um, people are starting to use credit cards now. I think, though, the participation in banks in Vietnam is is really among the lowest in the region. I mean, it's low, lower even than in, in places like 
Cambodian Laos. So mm-hmm. so people are, oh, really? are tend to be very mistrustful of the banking system. Uh, they tend to want to hold on to gold as a hard asset. Uh, uh-huh. And, you know, in in some ways, I think economists would look at that as a very rational decision. But when it got mixed up then with the banking system and with financial capital, uh, it really had quite a destabilizing effect. So part of what's going on is trying to uh, really demonetize gold. That is to to, uh, reduce the effects of its currency. So it can still be held as an asset, but it's not something that's used to price, say, real estate, and it's not something that people are using as much to settle debts, and it's not financial capital. So banks are no longer allowed to lend gold. Huh. You were talking on a very macroeconomic level here, but it sounds like you did research at the level of lottery ticket sellers and and street people who you know use currency on a day-to-day can you talk about that process and what kind of research did you do well ethnographic research is really uh, on the ground talking to people about how they understand uh, the kinds of transactions they're involved in the kind of meanings that they ascribe and so that requires you know a lot of interviewing people, just talking to them, trying, hanging out with people. Uh, but one of the challenges for anthropology now is to try to link some of these very, uh, in, what might seem as incidental or anecdotal evidence to some of these macro issues. Uh, so you're not just stuck in uh, a story about something somewhere, uh, but you're using it to uh, illuminate some of these broader stories that often get told let's say, by economists mm-hmm. rather than by anthropologists. So that's, uh, that's one of the uh, predicaments for cultural anthropology today about linking those two together. Your, the mention of the use and the role of gold and fake gold in uh, Buddhist traditions and burning of gold for ancestors. It sounds like that even played a piece in your in your study. Yes. Um, so certainly the idea of, of uh, spirit money uh, and the idea that people are, are expressing their care or they're trying to solic- solicit the help of ancestors or gods or even ghosts through these kinds of offerings was an important Uh, dimension that I was very interested in. Uh, And so scholars have used to say that gold used to be something that was reserved for the gods. Silver was what you gave ancestors. But what we can see happening now, especially in Vietnam, but also in Taiwan and and Hong Kong, is is a real kind of mingling of all these different forms. Uh, And so some scholars have even attributed uh, the dollar in its, in, in its symbolic form as spirit money as the oh, great goodness. leveler oh, <laughs> that you can offer you know uh um this uh dollar to ghosts as well as gods so it's actually leveled this traditional hierarchy <laughs> in the supernatural world pictures of benjamin franklin and george washington yes in the in the underworld yes <laughs> 
You are fluent in Vietnamese, I understand. I do speak Vietnamese. Of course, when one's doing research, you know, you quickly come on the li- uh, up to the limits of <laughs> I think you're what being, you're able to speak I've and heard, understand. From what I understand, you're being very modest and you're very fluent. It sounds like you probably did a lot of these interviews yourself. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like being a Caucasian woman going on all levels, speaking to people in Vietnam, especially in the 90s, uh, being fluent in Vietnamese. How was that experience and how were you received? Well, I think a lot of people were first taken aback and they wanted an explanation. Why do you know <laughs> Vietnamese? Like, no Vietnamese uh, speaker would need an explanation for why they wanted to learn English. <laughs> right, right, I mean, right, it's, right. it's obviously self-evident. But if you're American, why are you learning Vietnamese? Now, I... Uh, You've met my husband, who mm-hmm. is uh, now Has also a, been on the show. a naturalized U.S. citizen, but he was born and raised in Vietnam. And so when I just want to give people the short answer, it's, well, my, my husband's, husband's Vietnamese. Vietnamese. <laughs> but, but I learned Vietnamese before, before. correct? Yes. yes. But that is a very culturally appropriate answer. Right. <laughs> it all makes sense now. You learned it from your husband. <laughs> And so, but to I go into because I understand the role of a husband in Vietnamese culture, particularly someone who doesn't have a husband. Yes. I yes. much understand. So that's why my that alibi. Was an easy, it was an easy out, <laughs> and it requires no further elaboration. Right. But you did, you did know Vietnamese. In fact, tell us about your first introduction into the Vietnamese community or Vietnamese American community to be more accurate? Well, I first uh, started working with um, communities in the United States, actually in Austin, Texas. Uh, And I was teaching English, which is uh, in some ways in the mid-1990s. I wanted to work with adult language learners. Mm -hmm. And there were basically two populations I could work with, the Tibetan population or the Vietnamese population at the time. Um, In Austin? In Austin, Texas. And I decided to work with the Vietnamese population. And as uh, you know, I worked with people, I learned their stories in the context of these English classes, I became, uh, I became more and more interested about learning uh, the language, understanding more about where they had come from. And so I first started learning Vietnamese at a summer language program, which is held every year at the um, University of Wisconsin at Madison. Okay. And then I actually went to Vietnam for the first time in 1996 and studied Vietnamese in Hanoi. Um, Wow. So most of my research was in southern Vietnam. So the way I speak Vietnamese is still has that tinge of northern. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And in the 1990s, I think that was a very uh, typical route. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was easy it was easy to secure visas. Most of the institutional contacts were with research institutes in Hanoi. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly become a lot more diverse, you know, the kind of pathways that people have to learning Vietnamese now. Uh-huh. But in, in the 1990s, it was, you know, all roads led through Hanoi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so through that, you've done, it sounds like over 10 years of research on uh Vietnamese, both here and and in. So I have I, I have worked here uh, with um, several Vietnamese American organizations, largely through the context of teaching at Tulane University, 
Uh, Tulane has a very active service learning program. And so I've taught a class called Global Vietnam, which addresses questions of the diaspora, uh, transnationalism, and globalization. And so my students have been fortunate to be able to work with organizations like Viet and the Mary Queen of Vietnam, uh, CDC, mm-hmm. uh, in the context of doing the academic component, but then being able to work uh, on these community-based projects as well. Great. Uh, that sounds like you've done a lot of cultural work and social work. How did you get to this point where you wanted to really discuss economy? Well, I, I w- didn't study anthropology as an undergraduate. I actually studied international relations. Uh-huh. And so I, I had been a Peace Corps volunteer in Hungary in uh, 1990 to 1992. So I was interested in these kinds of economic transformations. And then this uh, step to Asia or Southeast Asia and to Vietnam, uh, I think I, I, I still had uh, some of those questions uh, were in my mind about what is this uh, role of money. And of course, it's very different in Vietnam than it is in Hungary. But mm-hmm. um, a lot of the questions that I had were coming out of of that experience of having lived in Eastern Europe when right did, after 1980, um, right. 1989. You said 91 you were in Hungary? I was there from 90 to 92. I was there from 97 to 98 on an exchange program, a study abroad program. And actually, my my the way I integrated it was, was discussing um, communist countries and formerly communist countries after 89. Um, so I, I was kind of looking at these similar themes as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that surprised me is how well uh, people adapted to the possibility of opening businesses, despite not really having access to that kind of freedom t- for entrepreneurialism uh, before 89. Um, w- since I've left, I'm sure it has totally skyrocketed as far as cottage industries What's Hanoi like today in that sense, in the sense of local business? How is that working out? We all know that there's a lot of export business, export-import businesses with seafood from Vietnam and stuff like that. Even some uh, rice, of course, and some, I guess, metal through like Laos and Cambodia. I guess there's a lot of export of that. What is what are, What does the small business world look like? Well, the small business world is in some ways integrated with larger businesses through, you know, what is often described of as cottage industries, right? Mm-hmm. The kind of outsourcing. So you might have then people who are doing piecemeal work that actually feeds these larger supply chains. Um, I think in terms of Hanoi, again, I'm not as familiar uh, with northern Vietnam as I am with uh, southern Vietnam, um, but I do think it is, there. there is still a struggle. There's still a struggle with uh, uh, legal reforms that are happening around consumer laws, around contracts, um, bankruptcy, all of these different uh, kind of legal forms which are under active debate. Um, so some of the assumptions that I think an entrepreneur here in New Orleans could make about the kind of business setup is still very uncertain for the entrepreneur, let's say, in a city like Ho Chi Minh City. Give me a, a, an example. Give me an anecdote of an example of that. I'll give you an example of uh, a close friend that I had who I had the opportunity to go and see. She actually 
uh, had worked as an overseas labor contract in um, Nagoya, Japan. Uh, and I went to visit her. I stayed at her family's house. Um, and she asked me, she said, well, so do you think I'm better off now? I mean, I have my own business. She had two or three employees working under her. And, and I said, well, you know, it seems like you're doing well. And she said, well, actually, I work until 2 o'clock in the morning every night. And I'm not paid overtime. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, that was how she summed up kind of her experience of uh, when she worked that hard in Japan as uh, kind of working for a wage, she was paid overtime. Uh-huh. And now she was having to work just as hard. Um, and she was making ends meet just right. barely. I mean, she had a new motorbike, but she had bought it on an installment plan. Uh-huh. So she was having to pay it off every month. Uh, so it's... Um, I mean, yes, she she had uh, she owned uh, a small house, and in some ways, it, it did look from the outside that she, she had that she was doing much better. But it wasn't how she felt about her life, which I thought was kind of an interesting anecdote about those perceptions that people have about whether they've actually improved their well-being or not. Uh huh. I mean, but does that have to do more with the fact that modernization isn't just what it's cut out to be? Or does that have to do with Vietnam going through some growing pains in understanding what capitalism is? Well, I think the growing pains um, are in some ways that, you know, we often think that there's a single endpoint and that all of these countries in the process of modernization are on the same highway leading mm-hmm. to the same endpoint. Right. But of course they're not. In the case of Vietnam, um, the role of gold, we can just take that as, a, as an example I had mentioned earlier, uh, that really had a significant effect on the banking system. And now one of the big questions in, uh, for many people is uh, the viability of the banking system. Mm-hmm. You know, and not knowing how many bad loans are out there. I right. think in some ways it's a similar, uh, it's similar <laughs> to, to the United States, through, right? right? And people sense, well, can we trust these banks? Mm-hmm. Uh, do we know uh, where uh, credit actually ends um, and what the limits are and who owes what to whom? Um, what was the perception of the banking or was it even affected, the perception of the banking system in Vietnam when you had the crash happen here? I, I think it was ago. belated. It was a little bit belated, but it definitely, uh, there was an effect. I mean, some economists talk about Vietnam's system as being shallower, that the level of people's involvement and use of financial transactions is far less than it is in a, than in a place like the United States. States. If you right. think about, like, for example, just take credit your, your, your credit record in the United States. Right, right, that right. determines you so... You can't get a house without it. You can't one. get a house right. without it. It determines so much. Even it's something that employers look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really is taken as an almost indicator of your moral worth. <laughs> <laughs> Do you repay your loans? And, and, and that is... Do that, you repay that, your loans, comma, jerk? How could you? <laughs> no, you don't get a house. Yeah. No, so it is strange. Uh, in some ways, uh, we take these kinds of instruments for granted. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, they've been in formation for almost 100 years. In a little bit, I'm going to ask you to share your contribution to our Vietikit seg- segment. But first, I want to finish up and ask you how how your family experiences in Vietnam are. How much time do you spend there? And 
how does that impact not only your studies, but also raising children who are Vietnamese American here in New Orleans, uh, where there is a Vietnamese community? Well, I have, um, when I do travel back to Vietnam, I bring my children. I used to just bring my daughter. Now I also have a son, so I had the uh, experience of traveling with both of them back to Vietnam. Uh, I'm fortunate in the sense that uh, my husband's family still lives in Ho Chi Minh City in Saigon. Mm -hmm. So they stay uh, with their grandparents. My daughter has a cousin who's nearly her age, and so they do most everything together. Uh, and, I, and I do think that our, my children have benefited tremendously uh, from actually living in Vietnam and learning to speak Vietnamese in Vietnam. I, I, I think it can be a real struggle for families to find a way of encouraging their children to speak the language, mm -hmm. uh, because it's often caught up in these dynamics of parental authority mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and very different notions of personhood. Mm -hmm. um, and this becomes especially clear when you're talking about terms of address. Uh -huh. uh, of course, because in English, it is uh, what uh, linguists call shifters. I, you, it shifts. The uh -huh. speaker is I. The listener is you, and then you shift that. But in Vietnamese, the terms, the conventions around using terms of address are much different. Uh, <laughs> they're they're much more different. And go go into detail for our listeners who aren't familiar with the uh, the puzzle. Of the puzzle of <laughs> Vietnamese terms of address. Vietnamese terms of address are, of course, one of the stumbling blocks when you are learning to speak. Vietnamese. Um, some people say, well, Vietnamese has so many tones. And that is true. And it is hard to uh, learn how to speak a tonal language. But the terms of address, I found, are almost more of a hindrance. Because you constantly have to think, who am I? in relationship, relationship to, to this person other person I'm speaking right. with. What is the level of familiarity with? How can I show respect? But I don't want it I don't want to assume too much. Right. I don't want to assume I don't want them too to little. make them feel old. <laughs> yes. But I want to be respectful. And, and I don't know how old they are. I can't tell. So I can't tell if they're younger than my father or not. Exactly. <laughs> and so there's these constant uh, mental calculations. And one of the things I've learned uh, living in Vietnam, of course, is that these terms of address, they're, they're never stable. That people, when they're speaking to one person, will even switch the terms of address that they use, <laughs> depending on, uh, you know, it could be a bargaining tactic, a negotiating tactic. Uh, so there's Break so that much that for, goes on. In bargaining, um, how does that change? Like, for change? example, uh, if you're trying to uh, assume some kind of authority, you might address yourself as the older one, right? Uh -huh. You might assert that. But if you're trying to cajole them into doing something, you might use, uh, you know, a kind of pair of terms that um, that kind of hierarchical Go. difference right. is leveled. Right. Uh, so you might ref refer to yourself in a much more kind of intimate and familiar way. Mm -hmm. And so there's strategies that people use. And, <laughs> and I think when you add into the mix someone who's not recognizably Vietnamese, mm -hmm. it complicates it. Mm -hmm. Okay, because <laughs> how do we address the foreigner? How does the foreigner address, you know, someone with respect? Um, and I remember when I was first studying in, Viet in Hanoi, 
um, my ma- one of I had three instructors. Two were women. One was a man, and the man never used a term of address with me. He just really he never used one. And apparently, how that is that is a possible? common strategy? Well, you just never refer to you never address that person. You speak about all sorts of other things, but you never address the person. But it apparently is is a, a common tactic. But how would he ask you, for instance, like, what are you doing? But he wouldn't ask those kinds of questions. Wow. Yes. Just completely... yes. So it took me a while to realize that. And I asked one of, the, one of the, um, my uh, female instructors who was livid at that. And it actually, there is a, um, there's a term for it and that children are reprimanded who aren't using terms of address. Uh-huh. Because, of course, you're subjecting yourself to all these assumptions about who you are in relation to the person you're speaking to mm-hmm. when you invoke these terms of address. So right. it's, a, it's, it's just, a, in some ways, it's a landmine. Right. <laughs> it's it a is. real landmine. But it's a fascinating area to understand what goes on to cultivate a relationship with who you're speaking to. I think it's also a great example of how important hierarchy is in in Vietnamese culture. You know, and we often in the United States tend to think that hierarchy is bad. Mm -hmm. But what anthropologists and other sociologists say, well, there's something good about hierarchy because you know where your place is. Mm -hmm. You know where your place is in the social landscape. Mm -hmm. And you know, and there's certain expectations and obligations and responsibilities that flow from in both directions. In both directions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know when you should yield. You know when you don't have to yield. And what happens in, I think, uh, a society of kind of hyper-individualism is there tends to be more competition and there, in some ways, can be um, some violence disorder, associated with yes. it or disorder because you don't know where you stand in relation to the other. Right. And... There is um, confusion and less stability because if your if your friends' parents are their friends, exactly. Why aren't my parents my friends? Exactly, right? and and I see it in in the students that I teach at Tulane, and so I I make now uh, I let them know how they can address me. I tell them, you know, you can address me as Professor Truitt, right. and when you graduate, you're welcome to call me Allison. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I, I've had to work with a lot as in a supervising capacity with people younger than me, but I don't feel I don't feel that old. But the way I feel like the way universities run now is very much it's much less hierarchical than before. You know, when I went to Absolutely. college, it was there's very much a sense of you be quiet and you listen to your professor because they studied for a very long time what they're telling you. <laughs> well, it has become less hierarchical. Of course, Tulane is located in the south. Um, I think uh, that there are certain kinds of regional norms uh, around communication. Uh, and I quickly picked up that all my colleagues expected to be called Dr. This, Professor That. And so I've, I've, I've followed along with that. Um, but I do notice that some, uh, some of my students will simply address me in an email. Hey. Oh, hey. Oh, my goodness. Hey. Sometimes hey, Professor, but usually not. Just hey. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not your TAs or anything. They're just Oh, no, no, students. no. Hey. They're 18-year-olds. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things I try to teach in, you know, a basic... 102 introduction to cultural anthropology manners not <laughs> even manners but but to let them see how they are actually creating 
uh, certain notions of personhood, to understand the kinds of assumptions, and to use, and, 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 and Japanese and Vietnamese offer two very powerful examples of very different codes. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very, very great way to put it. It's like, it is a code. Mm -hmm. It is something you have yeah. to understand to you unlock. You do have to <laughs> understand. You need to unlock it or you'll constantly be, be, as I found myself when I started learning Vietnamese, oh, what do I call myself? What right, do I call right. the person I'm speaking to? Right. It, was, it was really an obstacle and you just have to <laughs> realize, okay, I'm going to make mistakes, but it's okay. I just have to bluster through it, you know. I will say one thing about Vietnamese culture. I don't know. I'm not as familiar with other Asian cultures, but it does seem when you make that mistake, Vietnamese, there is like a little bit of goofiness so that people will just kind of laugh and correct you. You know, it's not like, <gasps> it's no, like, no. Oh. I, I mean, that's like, I think you're exactly right. And I think I put more weight on having to master these norms <laughs> than other people did. And they said, well, yeah, this is complicated. Well, you're an ethnographer, so. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is. Particularly <laughs> sensitive to that, which is great. I just love working with the Mary Queen of Vietnam, Vietnam CDC people because I'm older than all of them. And it's very rare that I get to call everyone am. So I really rub that in when I'm there <laughs> and they just giggle at me. So it's like, oh, but it, it's funny, too, because you're not really supposed to use am if you're talking to a male who's about your age, even if he's younger than you. But I just I do anyhow. Well, put them in their place, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Allison, what are you working on now? What's what's in the future? You just finished. It sounds like a pretty hefty chunk of your life working on this book. Yes, and um, I'm still working on the material that I collected this summer on gold, uh, and I've started a new ethnographic project, which is looking at Vietnamese Buddhism along the Gulf Coast. So, or lack thereof. From what, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I don't feel there's a lack, because really? we attended four uh, different celebrations of Vulan, uh, in August. Okay. Uh, and it was certainly uh, very eye-opening to be able to go to four different temples. We went Where? In temples. New Orleans? Um, no, we actually went to temples in uh, Lafayette, Biloxi, oh, um, Mount Vernon, Alabama, and Panama City, Florida. Can you explain to our listeners what you're talking about and, and the nature of that festivity. Well, um, Vulan is often uh, called Vietnamese Mother's Day or Vietnamese Parents' Day. Uh, and that's a, a strategy of, of trying to find some way of making it more familiar. But it actually is uh, has a very interesting history um, and one that I've just started to do some research on. But it really is a celebration of filial piety, the mm -hmm. idea that Hugh, uh, Hugh yeah. yes, that you need to be, that a child needs to be devoted, especially to elderly parents. Uh, and for the rest of their lives. For the rest of their lives. <laughs> the idea that this is an, it is an eternal debt. It cannot ever be paid off. And in fact, uh, you demonstrate your moral worth by... Uh, <laughs> constantly repaying a debt which can never be fulfilled uh, and so it's a it's it's a quite different notion than of the parent-child relationship than uh, in 
mainstream America, where, of course, you can hear teenagers tell their parents, I never asked to be born, and (laughs) uh, these kinds of assertions of autonomy and independence. (laughs) So, but you you saw these celebrations at Buddhist temples. Yes, at Buddhist temples. Uh, So some historians of China actually look at uh, the origins of this celebration as a kind of accommodation on the part of Buddhists to the Confucian Interesting. Uh, I was it's aspect not particularly of particularly right. So, so it really is, in some ways, uh, a way uh, for um, Buddhists to say we do have a notion of filial piety, but the myth that's associated with Wulan is about a, a disciple of uh, Buddha whose mother was sent to the underworld for her greed, uh, and he tried to do penance in order to uh, save her soul, uh, but he was told he couldn't do it alone, that he needed the entire community. And in fact, it was only when you had then the uh, seven generations of mothers and fathers uh, could you actually then save his own mother. And so the idea, of course, quickly expands the particular mother-child relationship into something which can encompass the notion of the Buddha Sangha or the moral community. I'm very much looking forward to reading your work on that and and how that's celebrated in the south of this country. So. Yes, so this, I have just embarked on this project and uh, I have a year leave from teaching and so maybe in another 13 years I'll have a book. <laughs> I'd love, you know what, we, I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about your research process. I'm sure that's going to be incredibly interesting. Well, I'd be happy to join you again. Thank you so much, Allison. Thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us at home, at work, on your phone, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And a special thanks to today's guest, Allison Truitt. Our show is produced by Kim Vu and Grant Morris. Our technical director is Chris Keogh. Our web guru is Dr. Cliff Brigden. Our theme song was composed by Taylor Smith and performed by the Swamp Lilies. The fabulous audio quality of this show is brought to you in part by PreSonus Audio Electronics. PreSonus makes some of the best audio recording and live sound products, including Studio One music production software, Studio Live digital mixing consoles, Eris studio monitors, and much more. Visit www.presonus.com for more information. You can follow us on Twitter at It's New Orleans. You can like us on Facebook. We're at It's New Orleans. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to our other Vietnola shows on our website, itsneworleans.com, as well as our other shows, Happy Hour, Out to Lunch, Mindset, True to the Game, and Midnight Menu Plus One. Keep up with all kinds of fun happenings here at Vietnola by getting on our mailing list. Sign up on our website, itsneworleans.com. Vietnola was recorded today in the lovely city of New Orleans. If you'd like to be a guest on Vietnola, we'd love to have you. Drop us a line. You'll find all the information on your web on our website. Vietnola is produced by INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. For everyone here at Vietnola, thanks for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you back here next week for our next episode of Vietnola. Until then, I'm Kim Vu. Bye now. You know Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. 
Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only. 